Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Oh, hi. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. It's a pleasure to have you here today listening to this podcast, which is about folk music and emotions. We don't really talk about how it's about emotions, but it is. It's about feelings and emotions. And today's guest also is about knowledge. Jake Blunt is very smart. He is a historian of black folk music, and we are lucky enough to have him share his knowledge. Let me tell you a little bit about Jake Blunt. Old time player Jake Blunt and his sister were the first of his family on his dad's side to be born off of the Virginia plantation where his ancestors were kept as slaves for as long as anyone can remember. That history was all around him as a kid. Uh, He would visit his grandparents every summer. And that knowledge hit him hard after the murder of Trayvon Martin in 2013. He had been under the impression that racism of that kind, a person could kill a 17-year-old black child and get away with it. He was unaware that that kind of racism still existed. He dove into researching the music of slaves, uh, spirituals, gospels, to try to figure out and understand how they survived, how they dealt with this. He didn't find what he was looking for until he came across the banjo and learned its history. It's become more and more widespread information that the banjo's roots reside in Africa. It was taken across the Atlantic by stolen black slaves, Blunt learned the history was directly tied to the slave communities around the Chesapeake Bay, who were his ancestors. Since then, he's received a BA in ethnomusicology at Hamilton College in New York and become a fervent researcher and sharer of black folk music. His new album, Spider Tales, is a nod to the great trickster of a con mythology, Anansi. The Anansi stories were tales that celebrated unseating the oppressor. These are mostly black traditional songs. Um, The subversion in these traditional songs help the singers survive. Like these songs are full of coded messages and allowed the singer room to criticize the power without fear of retribution. Jake is also a young queer man in America, which makes its way into his music in interesting ways. Like for instance, He changed the pronouns of where did you sleep last night to all male pronouns, and his explanation of why he did that is absolutely heart-wrenching. Jake is smarter than, like, 
everyone I've ever spoken with. He's my new favorite person and he had the most fun lightning round ever. This person is amazing and I'm pleased to present this interview. And I'd like to share a clip of Jake's song, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? Actually, Basic Folk is so pumped to be premiering the video for Where Did You Sleep Last Night? Um, You can watch it on my website, cindyhouse.net. The video animation was done by Dan McDonald Studios, and the photo of the animation was by Michelle Lotker. And again, you can check this out at my website, cindyhouse.net. But we're going to take a listen to Jake's version of Where Did You Sleep Last Night? And then we'll get to our conversation with the incredibly insightful and sweet and super smart Jake Blunt on Basic Folk. My boy, my boy, don't lie to me. Tell me Jake, thanks so much for talking today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So your family's roots lay in Smithfield, Virginia, is that correct? It is indeed. Yeah, so I read that your sister and you are the first generation on your dad's side to be born off of the plantation where your relatives were kept as slaves. Yes, indeed. Back in the day, um, obviously, there were quite a few different plantations in that area of Smithfield. Uh, it's still a big farming community now, but uh, our our ancestors were kept on those various plantations back in the day. How is that history approached when you were growing up? Well, it's very kind of every day there. Um I think it is kind of a profound thing and a painful thing in some ways. But at the same time, I definitely remember driving around town with my grandfather and him pointing to trees in different fields and saying, there's this one particular tree where he'd point to it and go, that's the tree your great, great, great granddaddy would sit under when he exercised his master's horses. There were these like very, very tangible attachments to that history laid out across the town. And I think it did make a very big difference in the way that we saw things. Uh, We grew up in Washington, D.C. My dad and his brothers all moved out of Smithfield and started families in other places. But we went back often, and that history was always present and always strong. And I think my sister and I both grew up to become sort of scholars of African-American history, partially because we grew up so close to it. How would you process that information as a kid? Before a certain age, I don't think that I grasped why it was that important. You know, it was one of those things where the adults talked about it. As a kid, you kind of got that it was important, but maybe didn't understand personally how you were supposed to approach it or what it was supposed to mean to you. And I think when I got to late in high school and early in college, I started to really feel attached to my grandparents and to that family history and to spend a lot of time thinking about it. 
And I think at that point, that's kind of when I started getting into traditional music. Uh, It led me there because I kind of needed a way to understand what my relatives were feeling and thinking during those times. Mm. And the music is really the only record we have that comes straight from their lips. I read this quote from you that said, my grandparents don't play old time music, but they certainly recognize it. I've only seen my grandmother dance uh, one time when I picked up the banjo and started playing Cluck Old Hen, which is great, great visual. Um, What have your grandparents taught you about music? My grandparents aren't super musical people outside of a church setting, and we definitely went to church with them when we were kids and we go visit. Um, On Sundays, they would go to church, and my grandfather was a deacon. He might still be a deacon, but they don't go all that often now because of their health. I think both of them helped us participate in that tradition. I certainly have strong memories of those services as a kid, even though I wasn't like super into them at any point in time. (laughs) Um, They were important to me. And they both sing and know songs. It's not something that they'd necessarily do while they're walking around the house or anything. But uh, I had actually a really exciting experience recently where for the first time I went to their house and went and visited them uh, and played music, which I normally do when I go see them. But this is the first time either of them had recognized a song. And I learned this song out of the Lomax collection called when my blood runs chilly and cold in his collection and i started playing and singing this song and they started singing along to it and (laughs) i was like how did you know that and my grandfather said that's one of the old songs that's do you remember me or do remember me so to me that was just a really exciting moment of realizing i had connected to something that they knew personally that's cool Uh, yeah that that was really exciting so, like, when your grandfather was like, that's one of the old songs, um, do you feel, do you ask him, like, well, wh- where did you learn that song? And will he tell you? I don't think I did ask him at that moment. I think he just told me that they sang it in church. And there have been a couple other moments like that where I played my dad someone's version of Shortening Bread once. And he went, oh, we had Shortening Bread in Smithfield. So they're just, you know, things that were going around in the community when they grew up. And I think especially for my grandfather, you know, there were former slaves still alive for a good chunk of his life. So these old songs that now feel very far removed, despite the fact that, you know, it really is that close in the family history. Mm. That was something he grew up in very close proximity to. Wow. You grew up in Washington, D.C., and your parents seem awesome. Your mom was an award-winning journalist on TV. Is she now a teacher? Uh, she is kind of just a, a general hustler these days. Yeah. <laughs> she has a lot of different <laughs> irons in the fire, uh, but she does uh, a lot of kind of communications training work, or she did a lot of communications training work, but she does a lot of panel moderating and event planning for people. Yeah, and your dad also is in like the media world. He's a celebrated author um, and TV director. And wondering, like, what kind of parents they were and if you can set the scene for what your house was like growing up. Well, it's pretty funny. Um, I think we had sort of the inverse of the typical uh, parenting setup when we were young in that our mom, being a correspondent, uh, traveled all the time. So she'd be she'd call us one day and be like, oh, I have to go 
to Pennsylvania for a week. See you in a week. She just had like a bag packed in the back of her car all the time, which <laughs> is funny that now I've turned into that. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad, because he was working in the control room at NBC, he was home all the time. So he, you know, was able to structure his break so he could take us to and from school. And, you know, he'd pack our lunches and keep keep the house under control when our mom was gone. It was pretty funny. I don't think I... I knew how odd so many of the things we did were when I was growing up. And now I'm an adult. I'm just like, shh, that was weird. Like every night we'd watch three different evening newscasts and our parents would just like pick apart what was wrong with each one. And then we got old enough that we would join in. So now we're all like immune to fake news now. (laughs) It was a... it was a good training to have during childhood, and I find myself wishing that that more people had access to that kind of uh, in-house knowledge that they were able to share with us. But it was just fun stuff like that. You know, politics around the dinner table all the time. Uh, we were made to feel very involved in the world around us and in the city around us, and I think that was a great way to grow up. I want to hear about where music was in your um, core family. Everyone in my family is musical, at least to the extent of being a hobbyist. My dad 100% could have been a professional musician. He has the best singing voice in our family by a mile. Wow. Um, Yeah, that's just not where he wanted to go with his life. Uh, But he used to always sing to my sister and me, play James Taylor and Peter, Paul and Mary and stuff on his guitar while we were falling to sleep. And um, our mom always sang, too. She played guitar also. But once she got pregnant and was too pregnant to hold the guitar, she put it down for the duration of her pregnancy and then just never picked it up again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So she would always sing with him. She's really, she really loves to sing. And so does my sister. They both are really big Broadway fans. So they'll sing show tunes around the house while, you know, making dinner or dessert or whatever. And my dad will complain about it. And I'd be upstairs like jamming on my electric guitar. (laughs) (laughs) It was a loud house. Another big moment for you was when it was announced in the summer of 2013, the man who murdered Trayvon Martin would not be going on trial. And it kind of like sent you into like a tailspin and made you realize that like a certain type of racism that you thought didn't exist still existed. I'm wondering like how as you as a teenager process that news and like what kind of conversations were you having with your friends and family? I think that was a really eye-opening experience for me because I was, you know, part of that generation of 90s kids that were raised to be like, oh, our parents solved this problem. Our grandparents solved this problem. We're not going to have to deal with racism. Right. The um, president's black. Exactly. Um, And I think because, you know, we were black, we knew that racism was still around. We even knew in the abstract that it was violent and that it could be that terrifying. But I think the thing that really made that experience different for me was that this is a moment where that violence and that fear emerged into the national limelight and a lot of people that I'd grown up around did not understand what side they should be on 
when in my mind this was the murder of a child. I was like, how are you going to say that Emmett Till shouldn't have been killed, but Trayvon deserved it? There was no difference to me. And I think coming to the understanding that so many of my classmates, because I went to a very white private school in D.C., were not coming down on the same side as me, that so many of the folks that I knew were saying, well, who knows what happened? Um, It really made me realize there's two whole different countries people are living in. And I felt like I wasn't connected enough to a black community because I'd gone to that school and grown up in the neighborhood that I did to really feel like I had that strong of a support network or that strong of a communal understanding of how to deal with it. And I went upstairs. I was in my grandparents' house and just pulled out this book of slave spirituals that I had gotten a few months before and just started going through them and just being like, how did they deal with this? What happened? I don't understand. And... I didn't really find what I was looking for there because so many of those are just like, yeah, everything's bad, but when we die, it'll get better, which was not really the encouragement I was looking for. Right. So I wound up going a little bit deeper and found out that the banjo and the fiddle, which I'd already kind of fallen for through this obsession with modern folk, were the centerpieces of secular music on the plantations back in the day, and that the banjo had had its first home in the United States amongst the enslaved people in the Chesapeake Bay region who were my ancestors. So I all of a sudden found this really direct familial connection to the tradition and decided I wanted to jump in. And fortunately, when I got to college, there was a professor there, Lydia Hammersley, who also became my advisor eventually. But I just kind of went up to her and was like, hey, I want to learn some banjo. I heard you play. And she was like, cool, come back here in a week and I'll give you your first lesson. Mm. So she gave me my first three and then I was just just hooked. How did it feel to start playing the banjo, like knowing that the history of the banjo is directly tied to your family? How did your connection to this instrument change you? I think it was a powerful moment for me. Not just because of the history of it, because when I first started, I was really more interested in learning to play modern music and write my own songs and things like that. I don't think I saw myself becoming a traditional musician when I picked it up, even though the tradition was what attracted me to it. I think for me, the really powerful part was picking it up and being good at it pretty quickly. I had never been good at something before (laughs) and you know I was like fine at writing papers and stuff I did okay in school but I didn't have a skill that I felt like was exciting to me and banjo was something that I picked it up and it came to me fast enough that even Professor Hammersley who was teaching me was just like you you've got something here um and at one point said something like well it's in your blood when we were talking about the history of it, because she was also advising my academic work. Um, And to me, it felt like this moment of becoming a part of something bigger. And I don't know if I'm spiritual enough to believe that there's some significance to me being of that line and picking it up so many generations afterward. 
but I definitely felt like it was a strong connection to my forebears and that it was important to me that it was so natural. It came so easily. I felt like there had to be something to it. So I did that for a long time. I'd kind of been wanting to play the fiddle for years, but always had been scared off by everyone saying how hard it was. Yes, it's hard, but I I jumped in and I'm glad that I did. You are also a queer person. Um, and going back to like, you have a BA in ethnomusicology from Hamilton College. You're basically like my favorite person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very uh, flattered. <laughs> yeah. um, you didn't start out in ethnomusicology, but you changed your change in direction took shape when you discovered the horseflies. Is this correct? Um, but you said that in the fo- horseflies, I heard the first penetration of queer sensibilities into old time music since the blues queens of the 1920s. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Absolutely. So I always found it kind of funny that I approached old time music from feeling this like deep attachment to the old tradition of it. And then I like fell in love with this weird hippie band from the 70s and 80s or (laughs) 80s and 90s, really. Um, But their music was the first old time music that I just got hooked on. And they were playing it without rejecting the influences that would have been natural to have at the time. So, you know, they got compared to the Talking Heads a lot. My immediate thought was the B-52s, because my mom really likes the B-52s. So I'd, like, grown up with this sound around. And I, yeah, something about the strong backbeat, adding percussion back, kind of just making it groovy again. It felt, from a queer perspective, I was like, I don't know if any of these people are queer to this day. I do not believe any of them are. If they if they are, they have not told me. But I felt seen by that for sure. And I think as a black person also, it felt more tangibly influenced by black people than standard issue old time, which yes, is hugely influenced by black people, but you kind of have to like write a paragraph to explain how. (laughs) It's not as obvious as like, yeah, there's a trap kit playing four on the floor and like, (laughs) it's not right in your face. (laughs) You were talking about your research that's gone into the music that you perform and because there's so many different genres in a lot of these songs that you perform you i don't know if you coined this term but that you use this term genre queer Mm -hmm. which makes me wonder okay so you say the idea is meant to describe a style of art that weaves or blends together many other styles within it it's fluid which makes me wonder how does being queer make you a better musician or a better researcher? Well, I did not coin that term. I'm not sure who did. I've just kind of been hearing it around for a while now. And for me, I think one thing that queerness gives people is uh, maybe an improved ability to question categories as a concept. And when you're working in a field like traditional music, the genres that we have today you know, come out of this really artificial separation that was made between race music and hillbilly music back in the earliest days of the recording industry, right? The genre boxes that we still fit ourselves into were created for racist purposes to 
divide these musical traditions by who was playing the music and who they were seen to be playing it for. And the creation of those genre categories led to the erasure of many, many black people who played in a style that would have been considered hillbilly music at the time. So I think my role now as a queer person of color playing the music is to question the accuracy and the relevance of those genre categories and say, maybe we can stick old time, what would have been called hillbilly music and blues music, which would have been called race music and bluegrass music and spirituals. And you can put them all in one place. And if you treat them all the way that they want to be treated, it sort of comes together as one whole. These weren't things that were meant to be separate. They're all part of a really diverse array of styles that all existed together and fed into one another before wealthy white capitalists decided they should be split apart. I really feel that being a queer person makes me better equipped to sort of dissolve conventions and categories because I have to do it to be alive. And I think it's telling that that was executed so successfully with this latest album. I mean, I think it was successful, but all the other musicians on the album, except when Jeff and Judy, the producers have their brief cameo, everyone in the band is queer. It's a gender balanced band, despite having five people in it. I didn't even do that on purpose. I just kind of put my ideal band together. And then a couple months later realized um, <laughs> that I'd put together an all queer old time band, but everyone who was a part of the project has studied multiple styles and everyone was willing to bring their many disciplines to bear on what we were doing. And I feel really lucky to have been working with a fiddle player like Tatiana, who plays beautiful bluegrass as well as old time. And someone like Nick who you know has an ethnocoreology degree and has studied all sorts of different stuff and Rachel Eddy and Hazy Siako both of whom are also really flexible and talented in an array of styles it to me was not a coincidence that when I wanted to put together this project I wound up going to all of my queer friends to do it with I did want to ask about Joe Thompson, um, who I first heard his name from Rhiannon Giddens. He's a, a fiddle player that she actually learned a lot of music directly from. And I read somewhere, Joe Thompson's main influence on your music was the understanding that artists intentionally adjust their playing style to fit their audience's expectation Therefore, um, you've done work towards understanding the ways in which the same songs have been reconceptualized over time melodically and harmonically to suit the audience and social justice issues. That's really cool. How do you think this applies to modern times? Like, how do you think songs are being used at this point to suit the audience and the issues? Yeah, I think, I don't know, this is sort of applying a concept rather than a practice, because I think what I was referencing with Joe Thompson was that he changed the way he played tunes depending on the race of his audience. Um, oh, he knew okay. he had to do he had to do different things to please a white audience than to please a black audience. And there's, I think, a whole quote from him about it in African Banjo Echoes in Appalachia by Cecilia Conway. 
but I do think it's all part of the same thing. I think reading the room and reacting to your audience is applies across the board. And I definitely do that now. And I think awareness of the way context changes the meaning of a song is really important for artists. I My favorite example of this lately has been the tune from my album, Beyond This Wall, which right judy wrote and jeff named well before donald trump was running for anything right the wall had not been brought up in our present day context it came from the inscription on the wall of a concentration camp so it was named after something completely different still very heavy and arguably part of the same continuum of ideology but at the same time now, when I say I'm going to play a tune called Beyond This Wall, every Democrat in the room cheers. I think it's just a super compelling example of how, given time, the things that we're working with change meaning because people will read the titles and read the, li- read the lyrics differently depending on where they're coming from and what thoughts and feelings they've brought into the room. You've studied music before the music industry existed and you've been part of the jam scene um, which is going to camps and going to festivals and just playing with your friends around the campfire not motivated by commercialism Um, and you've in recent years have become part of like the modern music industry Where does that leave your perspective of the music industry and what it has done to shape music? I think that there are great goods and great downsides to the modern music industry. And I think as it plays into traditional music specifically, probably more downsides than upsides. Um, I think that the emergence of commercial recording of our music has definitely led to kind of hierarchy and exclusivity at some times in the scene, which always existed in some degree based on instrumental skill. Um, But I do see that as something that is influenced by commercial success. And I think that that's not something I necessarily appreciate. I also am definitely aware of the ways in which, you know, different music licensing groups have not always been understanding of the unique role that traditional music plays. I saw a really exciting and long time coming confrontation between an older old time musician and someone who worked for, I forget what the category for these organizations are, but it was either ASCAP or BMI or one of those things, a music licensing group that enforces, uh, copyright basically Mm -hmm. and collects royalties for artists and um this old time musician said we've had this jam in this location for such and such amount of time and all of a sudden they got a cease and desist letter from one of these organizations saying that they had to pay thousands of dollars every year to be able to host live music here because they couldn't guarantee that all of it was public domain. Now it's old time music, so it is all public domain. Wow. But this dude kind of clapped back at her by saying, we believe music has value and music should be paid for. And she kind of said, but your organization has no role in making the music 
it isn't paying the people who made the music. We're creating the music. We should have the right to decide whether we get to do that or not. Um, And it was just a complete stonewall on his side of just not being willing to grasp that this was something that existed outside of the purview of what his organization did. And I found that fascinating to witness. And I think that is something that's really devastating a lot of small venues. There are a lot of places that used to host live music that are closing down concert series because they get bullied by people who claim to be working on behalf of musicians. Um, I only speak for myself, but I don't want to make my living by extorting small venues that exist to help me. I will make a lot more by going and playing in their concert series than by extracting small pennies from, in my case, ASCAP. I'm an ASCAP artist, and they stick up for me when I need it. But at the same time, it would be really great to uh, to have a little bit more say in the way that this capitalist industry represents our interest. I don't know that the template that applies to commercial music applies to traditional music, and I think we're going to have to figure that out as more and more things go digital right now. Mm. This is the reset button music industry. Seriously, (laughs) who knows what's going to happen. So your latest album you've mentioned, um, Spider Tales, it's uh, the title is a nod to the great trickster Anansi. <laughs> the Anansi stories were tales that celebrated unseating the oppressor. These are mostly, not all, these are mostly black traditional songs. And the subversion in these traditional songs help the singers survive. Like these songs are full of coded messages that allowed them the room to criticize without fear of retribution. Um, which is very interesting. Um, what kind of coded messages did you see in these songs? And like, what was the evolution of your discovery of this mostly lost history? I think some of the songs on the record have super clear, very concrete coded messages, like say move Daniel, where this was something, a song that was, created by enslaved Gullah Geechee people. Uh, For those who do not know, the Gullah Geechee people live in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and I believe some in Florida. Um, And part of this uh, tradition is this thing called the ring shout that is often pointed to as an example of a cultural form that comes direct from Africa. And one of the ring shout songs is called Move Daniel. I adapted it for this album And essentially, it was a way for members of this ensemble to direct another enslaved person to go get some meat from the master's smokehouse without running into any, you know, patrols or guards or whatever along the way. So there are all these coded messages where they say, you know, do this particular movement uh, because the ring shout is a movement practice as well as a musical practice. They will give directions ostensibly to the people participating in the ring shout, but Daniel would hear it wherever he was and it would tell him what direction to go. And he was able, you know, to go get the food that his community needed. And I thought that was an incredibly powerful thing to listen to. 
And I feel really fortunate that the man from the Macintosh County Shouters, whose album I learned it from, explained what it was ahead of time. So I knew uh, what was happening. So there are some that are very concrete like that. Did he just tell the story before the song started on the recording? Yeah. Yeah. He just explains who Daniel was and what the song is about. And it's it's really great. Um, I guess some of them are a little bit more obscure in the sense of where did you sleep last night, which I think a lot of people kind of interpret as a heartbreak song or a love song in some way. I've never really heard it that way. You know, the lyrics are, my girl, my girl, tell me where did you sleep last night? In the pines, in the pines where the sun don't ever shine. I would shiver the whole night through. I changed it to my boy. But um, it never sounded like a love song to me because I'm like, what the hell did he do that she's so mad she went and slept in the woods in the winter? (laughs) (laughs) That was clearly not what that was about to me. And um, I think I related to it on this level of you know family history and personal history that my dad would tell me stories about people in his community sort of disappearing overnight and I had always thought of lynchings as things that just were you know public events in the south that did happen and people would you know go have a picnic and hang somebody that was not always what happened sometimes people would just vanish and you'd kind of assume what had taken place and I connected to that because you know I grew up as a queer person of color who was involved in activism through certain you know nonprofit organizations and just organizing with other youth leaders and it seemed like every month for a while someone I knew or someone that I was one degree separated from would disappear would die would get incarcerated would become homeless and we'd lose touch and I interpreted this song as a different way of talking about that that these are people who are just kind of going away fading out of our lives um that you know he's checking in on somebody and saying where did you go what you know where did you sleep last night not in the sense of like who did you sleep with Mm. but where are you going? Are you okay? Um, and the answer is a resounding no. Um, so I've always uh, felt that song pretty strongly. And some of my analysis of those hidden messages just came through my understanding. And some of it came through reading more and more about the significance of spirituals, like the angels done bowed down, which is also on the record. And, is a plea for God to cleanse the earth through fire, blow out the sun, turn the moon into blood, and, um, you know, purge the sinners, which is a fairly fire and brimstone standard Christian thing to talk about. But in the context of the African-American religious music tradition, I've always thought that Jesus, as this innocent person who's being tormented and killed, represented the slaves, and that there are certain things like the River Jordan that represent, uh, you know, crossing over to freedom or things of that nature. And I'm far from the only one who's drawn that conclusion. Uh, I would later go on to read things by James Cone, W.E.B. Du Bois, Souls of Black Folk. And they talk about those metaphors and the fact that these were coded ways of speaking about the things people were suffering through at the time. And 
to me, that just, you know, made me feel more justified in my readings of these songs and helped me kind of put together which ones I wanted to to stick on the album. Wow. I don't know if you feel like you can answer this or not, um, but how do you think these subversive messaging or coding in this music affected the Black people singing, sharing, writing these songs? How do you think that not being able to speak their minds like continues to affect like their ancestors. Like, did you feel that in your family, like things were coded and subversive? I think sometimes I don't think that's as much true now because people are able to speak very directly and loudly about it. And I think you can see that even within Spider Tales because there's a range of time that these recordings were made in. And early on, you might have the angels done bowed down, which is the spiritual saying, I want God to cleanse the earth and save us. However many years later, you have Mad Mama's Blues that I also recorded. It's the last track on the album, and it's this black woman from the 1920s saying, I want to set the world on fire. I'm a devil in disguise. Got murder in my eyes. Right? There's this very strong shift toward like I'm pissed off and you got to deal with it um, <sighs> that I think is definitely the side of things that I grew up on um, I do think that there are folks my grandparents age my grandparents don't like to talk about a lot of stuff that happened back in the day partially because it's just painful and traumatic I think but also because I think there's an ingrained thing about like not talking too much about it or not saying the wrong thing yeah I think it's still present and I do think that one of the reasons the musical traditions within the black community have been so strong is that it was the only way people could honestly express themselves to each other without being afraid hmm it seems to me and correct me if I'm wrong like the old time uh, genre and community is becoming more inclusive, more diverse, and is making space for Black and queer performers. What do you make of this? Uh, what what more do you think could be done? Well, I think it's definitely the truth. I mean, we've seen a few manifestations of that just in the past year, right, of the gay sweep at Clifftop last year, where queer people claimed first place in every category in the contests at our biggest old time festival. Um, that's that, cliff. That's cliff top. It's like a, it's like a hippie old time jam. Yes. Hang in the woods and their contests and the contests there are sort of like the taste making event of the year for old time. A lot music. of Birkenstocks. So, yes. <laughs> uh, those, um, what are those like Chelsea boots that are like brown Oh, those blunt stones. A lot of blunt stones, um, maybe a lot of keens. Yeah, yeah. Some Tevas. There's a Teva crowd. Right. <laughs> and the other and the other one is the um Chaco. Probably a lot yes. of Chacos. Yes, totally. Yes. Okay. Just setting yeah. the scene for those who don't know. Indeed. The footwear you find. Yes. <laughs> and it's a really fun gathering, but the contests are sort of like this big event where, you know, the a lot of the big names come to compete and the people who win get hired at all sorts of camps and stuff and really get on the instructor circuit. And it can be a big boost if you're a performer as well. And this past year, 
every single category had a queer person in first place. Some of them are whole bands and not everyone in the band was queer, but in every category, a queer person came in first. In both the solo contests, those were people of color. One was me, the other was Nikosi Fields. And that felt like a really big moment for sure. Um, There was even a plan to have the first annual queer and trans old time music gathering this spring, which got canceled like everything else this spring and will now happen next spring. Um, (laughs) There's a big surge in representation. There's also the Afro Latin on time music gathering that's been happening yearly now for two years in Orange, Virginia, organized by Dr. Dina Ross Jennings, who is just incredible and you know really giving giving from herself in a in an incredible way during this pandemic and providing free tests to her community um she's really amazing and she's put this thing together that this past year was my first year there and Rhiannon Giddens made like a surprise appearance she told me like me and one other person she was coming and was like but don't tell Dina and um (laughs) she she like rolled up from the Americana Awards, like with her Americana Award in a tote bag and like <laughs> hadn't slept in three days. It was just like, <laughs> she walked in and was just awestruck and was just like, I have never come to something like this and not known all the faces before. Wow. That there were enough black people there that she didn't already know all of them was so powerful and to hear her say that, because she's the one who brought so many of us into the fold, was just really, really powerful for me. And I think a clear sign of how far we've come just, you know, in the 13 years since the chocolate drops, you know, rose to rose to fame. And I really do credit them with starting that wave. And there's a lot of overlap between the black old time music and queer old time music contingents. Hmm. So those things definitely do go together to some extent. And I think there's more to be done everywhere. I think that right now the old time community is having a lot of important conversations about whether and how we should be engaging with the Black Lives Matter movement because black people were such an important part of creating this genre of whether banjo builders uh, need to be, you know, helping out, for instance, the Black Banjo Reclamation Project led by Hannah Mary. There's a lot of conversation about what we can do, how we can do it. I think those are conversations that need to be had. Um, we're talking about what songs we should be singing, where we should be singing them, what tunes we should be playing, because some of them have really nasty lyrics or really nasty histories, and we need to find a way to not accidentally scare people off when they want to come be part of our tradition. So there's a lot of important conversations being had, and I think they're going to continue to be had. I feel like right now we're in a moment where a lot of voices, including mine, frankly, that were seen as really fringe and out of control, you know, back when the Black Lives Matter movement started, are suddenly becoming part of the mainstream. Mm -hmm. Uh, And people who maybe were not willing to hear what I and many of my co-conspirators had to say about, like, tunes that come out of the blackface minstrel tradition or, you know, tunes about confederates or whatever you have. Um... People are starting to listen to that. People are starting to listen to the idea that maybe 
white banjo players do owe some kind of debt to black people, especially if they make money using their banjo, and that there's a way they should be trying to repay that. So I think we're seeing a period of rapid and intense growth. We will see how it all pans out. I'm really interested in how these last couple weeks are going to shape the coming years. Hmm. One more question, really like looking for some advice here. It's a conversation I've been having recently and how to diversify like other types of white music. One big one on my mind being Celtic music, which comes from an oppressed people, differently oppressed than black people, but Irish people consider themselves oppressed nonetheless. Rightfully um, so. In, yeah, in, in like 2020, do you have any thoughts or advice on how to make a genre like Celtic music more inclusive? I, mm-hmm. I don't know about Celtic music specifically, but I think overall something the music world can do is just to look at who you're booking for your events and look at what sort of paraphernalia are allowed at your events. Looking at you, all the old time and bluegrass festivals with Confederate flags flying, uh, take a cue from NASCAR. Uh, never thought I'd say it, but yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think we need to be honest about the how much our communities are slanted right now to make white people feel comfortable and make other people not. Um, I think a big part of that for old time is going to be having more events in urban settings. Not to say there aren't plenty of black people in the country, but I think a lot of black people in the country maybe don't look upon gatherings of just white people playing fiddles and banjos as like, a place that they would be welcomed. Mm. Uh, I know a lot of my friends from the city, when they hear about me going to some festival in the woods in West Virginia, are like, okay, don't blame us if you die. <laughs> mm. I think we uh, we structure a lot of things in a way that might not be designed to exclude people, but excludes people nonetheless. And I think that in every genre, people can be thinking about how to diversify lineups, how to choose geographic locations that are financially and just on a comfort and safety level more accessible to different kinds of people. There are a lot of conversations that we can be having about that. Hmm. All right. Um, We do this very fun thing that you're going to love called the lightning round. Okay. All right. Here we go. What is the first song you learned on the guitar? Iron Man by Black Sabbath. What is your karaoke song? Oh, man, I haven't been to karaoke since I was like eight. <laughs> is it Private Idaho by the B-52s? I mean, I would do that. I would, <laughs> I would turn up. Uh, favorite radio station as a kid? DC 101. What kind of station was that? It was like really angsty rock music. Nice, of course, yeah. for the Nine Inch Nails fan. Yeah. Or like Seether and Puddle of Mud, like that level. <laughs> oh yeah, you were a, you were a teen in an unfortunate time. It's true. Um, dogs or cats or something else? Uh, dogs. What is your coffee order? Uh, a London Fog. What's that? It's so I don't like coffee. It's like sort of like a chai latte, but with Earl Grey instead of chai. That sounds gross. 
It's so good. It's just like Earl Grey, steamed milk, some sugar. It's delicious. Wow. You. Um, what's your favorite U.S. city? Ooh. Providence, Rhode Island. Mm. Uh, first album you bought with your own money? City of Evil by Avenged Sevenfold. Ugh. <laughs> That's terrible. Uh, um, first concert? Uh, Heart, Journey, and Cheap Trick. Ugh. Okay. Interesting. Who took you? My sister. Thanks, Julia. (laughs) What's the last book you read? King of Scars by Lee Bardugo. What is your dream collaboration? Hattari. Say that one more. Hattari, the Icelandic Eurovision contestant from last year. (laughs) Like a reality TV? They're like, they're beyond that. It's a spectacle. You should look them up. Okay, I will. (laughs) Flying or invisibility? Flying. Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Wars. Lord of the Rings or Narnia? Lord of the Rings over everything except N.K. Jemisin. Wow. All right. Okay. And for the win, where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Vava'u in the kingdom of Tonga. Hmm. Oh, yeah, I read that you taught square dance to some children there. Yes, indeed. What what made it so beautiful? Uh, well, I, I traveled there on a sailboat, and I think, oh, man, it was just a really idyllic place, beautiful kind of small towns and whales everywhere. It's known wow. for its whale watching, so we were just out sailing, and we'd see, you know, pods of sperm whales and... Um. Yeah, I don't even know how to put it into words. There were very beautiful giant spiders hanging in all the plants. They're just called oh. Tongan giant spiders. They don't even have a, a scientific name except the Latin name. So the wow. Tongan giant spiders were a very pretty kind of golden orb weaver looking thing. And I don't even like spiders, but it really added to the, the vibe. The truth comes out. You yes. don't like spiders. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much. This has been uh, such a great conversation. It's really great getting to know you and your music and work is so important. And yeah, just keep keep going. Well, thank you. It's great to talk to you. Basic Folk is produced by Adam Corey and Laura McCarthy with Laura taking the reins this week. Lindsay Myers is our business manager and best friend. Alex Stanton of the band Townspeople does our music. Basic Folk is so happy to be on American Songwriters Podcast Network. You can find show notes, more information, and also the video for Jake's new song, Where Did You Sleep Last Night, at cindyhouse.net. We're happy to be premiering that music video. Uh, And thanks for listening all the way to the end. So fun. So fun of you to do that. And please uh, rate and review, subscribe, and tell your mom and your dad and your brother and your sister about Basic Folk. Okay, thanks. See you later. Bye.